Welcome to Wisdom and Wonder, discussing the things you wonder about with curiosity and an open mind. I'm your host, Anne, and today on the podcast, we have Professor Jolfs to talk about reading and the human brain. I'm so grateful that you're here and that we can have this discussion. Um, so welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. Uh, I guess like sort of I would like to start off with a few questions on a little bit of background of who you are. Sure. Um, so sure. and like kind of sure. how we got to this discussion exactly. Um, so like how long have you been working here at Redeemer? And uh, why did you decide to study medieval literature? Oh, good questions. Good questions. So I've been at Redeemer for 12 years now, which uh, time time is kind of merciless. Uh, the days are are long, but the years are short, and, that, <laughs> and it feels like that. I can't believe that I've been here uh, that long. Um, my interest in medieval literature is, in some senses, is very simple. It began in my first year as an undergraduate at the University of Puget Sound in Tacoma, Washington. Um, part of my curriculum there, they have a core curriculum, or they used to have a core curriculum. Okay. And... Uh, the particular program that I was in was a, what they call what we call in the states an honors program. It means that it was a core curriculum, but set with a specific uh, um, set of texts that it would read. So here, okay. this was geared towards classics. Okay. So this was a great books program, and oh, so I had a series of four or five semesters where we were reading book lists that included usually about ten. Uh, primary texts from the past, starting oh, from wow. ancient Greeks all the way. And, and this is your first year. This was my this was my first year, and and they're divided over semester, right? Okay. So my first year, the two courses that I took, one was a historical perspectives, where we were reading uh, Thucydides, we were reading Livy, we were reading um, uh, the Venerable Bede, which was one of the first medieval texts that I engaged in full. And the second semester was a humanistic perspectives course, okay. and in that class, I read the Iliad. I read Dante's comedy, which was really the beginning of my love of medieval studies. Um, we read Dante's Inferno, uh, the entirety of the work. Those of you here at Redeemer will know we, we give you snippets over a couple of days. Yes. In yes. my course, we read the entirety of Inferno, and it was a fascinating moment for me. As a young evangelical, I've been a Christian about four years. I was a, an honors kid straight-A student kind of thing. And here I was in this intellectual environment that was... It's a secular school, though it has a religious history. Right. But in the context of one of my honors courses, we were reading an overtly Christian text. And it was by what I consider to be the greatest poet in the Christian tradition. Dante's comedy, to me, is an endlessly fascinating work. I have been absorbed for the last 31 years in reading wow. and thinking about it. Now, my own area of expertise emerged later, got interested in English, medieval English literature. Right. When I went off to graduate school at the Yale Divinity School, had an opportunity to be learning Latin and reading kind of Latin hagiography, oh, wow. saints' lives and the like, and also thinking a little bit about, specifically about gender. So I focus, mm -hmm. a, my principal focus is on medieval women's religious literature. Wow, yeah. And thinking about what it means for women to write, what it means for them to author what it means for them to be theologians who are, who are talking about experiences with God. And so when I got to my doctoral studies, ended up focusing, my doctoral studies were at the University of Notre Dame, which is a, has a medieval institute. Um, I was required to pass a Latin exam along with some other uh, kind of technical skills, uh, 
manuscripts and paleography, kind of that, those pieces. Um, so I love the material culture of the yeah. Middle Ages as much as the intellectual life that's there. And eventually settled out on a dissertation that wrote on Julian of Norwich, who's a 14th century female um, visionary writing in England. Um, our first named woman writer in English, oh, wow. which is a, 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 an impressive task. And then the second part of my dissertation was about a French writer, also a woman, Marguerite Perret, who was executed for her book oh, wow. in the early 14th century, several decades before Julian came on the scene. And part of the task was to put these women in conversation with one another. How do they go about um, essentially making controversial arguments as women right. about theological matters, complex philosophical matters, mysticism, and these kinds of experiences that people have. So there was a, there was a, there's a progression. It started with medieval literature in a survey right. course. And the more that I dug in, the more that I read, the more that I looked at medieval art and manuscript illustration, like I just fell in love with the medieval world. And very much sensed as a as a an evangelical Protestant mm-hmm. in terms of my formation, that there was a whole portion of the Christian story that had been denied me. Yes, I do. I resonate with that so <laughs> much. Uh, you know what? It's funny. I'm married to a Catholic, so Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> so I really and I'm I'm Protestant myself, but I have very much grown to appreciate. I think I think it was almost like we thought like there it was like the basically the church started at the reformation yes. like there's this attitude That's like it. like i hadn't read anything or knew anyone like i don't i think i might have heard of like augustine because he was quoted by calvin so extensively yep. but yep. other than that there was just yep. I, I don't know like who were these people and yeah. and so i think i was like wow there's thousands of years of just thousands of years of yeah. like people who were talking and writing about christianity yeah. and and i think yeah i really resonate with that that feeling that, oh, wait, what's that dearth? Like, hey, <laughs> I want some of this too. There is a need to kind of overturn the narrative too, the assumption that the Protestant Reformation corrects and gets everything mm. right, when in fact they are the latecomers to the conversation. Mm. Those who come at the 11th hour are not the ones who have been there from the beginning of the conversations. This is a point that C.S. Lewis makes in On the Reading of Old Books, right. which is one of the first texts you all read in your course pack in Hum 110. Right. right? So what we want to do as good Protestants, and my Catholic uh, undergraduate mentor who introduced me to that medieval world said, reading the Catholic Middle Ages will make you a better Protestant. Fascinating yes. comment, right? Yes. And I've 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 wrestled with that. It's not I think you live into it. It's not mm. something that you can prove yes or no, but you kind of live into it. And what you begin to recognize is that for me, the Middle Ages are my brothers and sisters. And that is a very different feel than I had gotten in my growing up years when Catholics might not even be Christian. Oh yeah, that was right? very much my so, my my upbringing. Yeah. Well. <laughs> so this, so this is the fascinating thing. And I, I even when I came for my interview at Redeemer, the first question from President Kreigsman uh, was, "How does a how does an evangelical find their way into the Middle Ages?" Oh wow! And yeah. that's just a, it, yeah. it is a fascinating thing. Yeah. But I am blessed to have had some really, I had a great mentor as an undergraduate, a woman who just retired from her teaching post after forty years oh, as a wow. university professor. And we are still in contact. We still, I, I got a chance to, to co-publish with her about 10 years ago. And that rela- the relationship is a part of what happened intellectually. 
And so mm. my love of the Middle Ages keeps coming back to what I did with Denise as an undergraduate. Oh, wow. And that that's amazing to me because I think so much of it you can think of how important educators are in terms of like making you fall in love with something you know like you think about I think about my about why I decided to study English it was you know it was like Mr. Jameson in my grade 12 class like he made me fall in love with English because he was so passionate and excited and he showed us a new world and a new way of looking and you think like oh that's such a it's so powerful you know it's like such a powerful place to to be as an educator so Um, I just wanted to ask sort of when I, cause to get kind of into our discussion about talking about, uh, reader come home and, uh, the reading brain in a digital world, that book that we're going to kind of discuss here, I, I kind of wanted to know how your research and like what led you to your medieval, you're in the medieval world mm-hmm. and now you're going into a digital world. Like, yeah. so what, what, what's the connection here? So we medievalists love, we, we love to sh- surprise and shock everybody. <laughs> Because they imagine that we spend our time with all of these ancient, crusty documents and that we are the quintessential uh, kind of ivory tower academics who Mm. never touch the real world because we're ensconced in the past. (laughs) The reality of the matter is that to study the medieval world, I love making this argument, my historian friends who study the High Middle Ages, so the period between roughly about 1200 and 1400, recognize that the modern world is born there. Some will tell you that it was born with the print press and with the Reformation, but the the elements, all the elements of modernity in terms of um, cities, the development of cities, urban urban living and urban uh, culture, emerge in the 12th century. And something changes in medieval Europe when that happens. Part of that change is about texts and books. And the primary engine for that is the university. Okay. The development of the university creates a need for texts and for literacy on a scale that we've never seen before. So there's a, a, a reality that for a medievalist who's interested in literacy, and I am, in part right. because women were both culturally denied their mm. place at the university, yes. formal education. For a lot longer than... For a lot longer than men. Yeah. But we're also, I will argue, extremely creative Mm. in acquiring literacy anyway. Because that's... Mm. That is the gateway in terms of the the realm of the intellect. If you're going to argue, if you're going to discuss, if you're going to have a deep theology, um, the only way to do that is to read. First, scripture, but also all of the commentary, all of the Mm. thoughts of others kind of in the process. So when I think about what I do as a reader of medieval women's religious culture, I study what I'm going to call informal literacies. Okay. Do women learn Latin? Some do. Most don't. If they don't, then they write in vernaculars. So Julian writes in Middle English, which would have been the, the, the native language of her age, Marguerite Perrette writes in a French that is available to her geographic location in a life. And when we medievalists get after the business of Latin, what we call uh, Latinitas versus vernacularity, vernaculars are all of the local tongues that emerged. And we are the benefactors of that speaking one of those vernaculars, which is English. Um, the, The process of watching how men and women, especially adult men and women, Um, use their literacy to forward causes, to forward theological positions, to forward, um, in in Julian's case, a particular view of God, 
These are creative acts. And so I'm interested in what did Julian know of the Bible, for instance? Where do I find the Bible in her text? Uh, If it's, as I would argue, if it's some passages are quoted directly, but others, for the most part, are kind of what I would call atmospheric. And it's clear that she's heard scripture Mm. and absorbed it into her language, even if she's not quoting book and verse the way you and I would do. Right. Right? Right. So there's cultural practices that are associated with literacy. Fast forward to the 21st century. I was invited when I took this job to teach a course on the history of language. Oh, which is, so fascinating. Which is the context in which I first encountered Proust and the Squid. My colleague, John Ben Rice, uh, who is the, the current English department chair, had said to me, this is 10 years ago now, after one of our, we have a May meeting where we discuss kind of what just happened and where are we going. Yeah. Uh, I had mentioned my interest in building something into my course about current states of literacy with regard to to digital literacy in particular. What what is the internet doing to our reading? I hadn't imagined at that point how dramatic the smartphone was going to be in that equation, and this is what Reader Come Home really deals with, right? Is that something happened 2007, which is ironically enough right when when Wolf published Proust and the Squid, she she was just glow, you know, basking in the afterglow of all of this hard work. Right. And then everything changed. And it didn't negate what she had investigated here, but it, suddenly there was a whole new context right. for yes. what was happening to us cognitively. So I began teaching Proust and the Squid in 2014 or 15, was fascinated by what Wolf was doing. I mean, we're talking about the nitty-gritty scientist who is literally opening people's skull caps, attaching electrodes, and measuring their responses when they read a text or, you know, whenever they're engaging something in a digital form. When Reader Come Home came out in 2018, I was a little slow getting to it. I didn't get to it until 2020. Right. But it was the book I was waiting for. Right, yeah. Which was a first-line assessment of what is happening And at the point of 2020, we can go back 30 years, just before I started my undergraduate studies. And I always, I think, fascinate my students in the history of language class when I tell them about the first email that I ever sent. Oh, yeah. Which was not in a decorative format with Google. You know, it was a blank screen with courier font, a password typing, no emojis, no character. Like, it was yeah. very, very, uh, we would call it kind of barbaric, I think. <laughs> but at the point at which I did that, I had a friend uh, about 300 miles away at that time who said, you got to try this email thing. We could chat in live time. And it was unlike anything that I had ever seen. In the 30 years that have passed, technology has taken a kind of, um, if we were to chart this mathematically, we would see a pr- parabolic curve. Like it's yeah. just it's it's geometric, yeah. and it's in it, the the speed and the breadth of technological spaces for reading that have occurred. I had I, I was eagerly anticipating Wolf writing about this because we are at the beginning mm. of what is a historical moment. The last time anything like this happened was the invention of the print press five hundred right. five hundred and fifty years ago. So the difficulty is that. People living 550 years ago didn't know that something was happening when the print press was changing their cognitive apparatus. As Wolf points out, we have the luxury of knowing that something is happening to us, but it's happening in real time. 
what do we do with that? Yeah. So this this is the interest. Okay. This yeah. is the interest. Well, yeah, and that's and that's fascinating. And just to to like maybe ask another a follow up question on that. Um, when you were like you were saying you were kind of waiting for that to to happen, is that because you had noticed a shift yourself in your students? Like what? So you were waiting Good. for this. So what was what was that about? All of those things. Okay. All of it simultaneously. Um, there was a book published probably, I want to say 2011, 2012, called The Shallows, another really interesting read in the early days of this. Um, a professor at the University of Michigan writes in the, his opening chapter about how he noticed that he couldn't read a novel anymore. Mm. And this is something that Wolf echoes in Reader Come Home, this yes. experiment at the end of, of letter four, where she comes back to a book that she loved from her earlier days yes. and finds herself fighting mercilessly with not enjoying the text and finding herself fragmented in her reading. And I think for those of us who are, what I'm going to say, out of necessity because of our age, mm. we are hybrid readers, biliterate yes. brains, right? Yeah. We, were, we were fashioned and formed on deep reading. Yeah. And then, shall I pause for a moment? <laughs> uh... Okay. okay. <laughs> I think we can keep going. Sorry about that. It's all good. Um, I'll have to edit. I'm sure I'll probably have to edit some of this out. <laughs> that's, that's fine. That's fine. The beauty of recording. This is technology right here, right? You yes. can edit it out. <laughs> yes. The cut and splice is still a very useful thing. So the matter of those of us trained, shall we say, old school, mm -hmm. who were deep readers, yes. who learned digital reading as a conscious act, right? We were not raised in a culture where we did that. That was Those were skills that we developed as we bought computers, as we typed yeah. dissertations on word processors and that kind of thing. For us, there was, I think, within a period of about 10 years, we recognized that something was happening to our attention span. Mm, that yeah. reading in the digital space, whether it was email or following you know, news online or reading blogs or whatever, that it was short and sweet we could do it for a five-minute period, absorb a chunk of data, and move on. Right, yeah. As, especially when it comes to digital news reading, you can just kind of, and Wolf talks about this, that our metaphors for this are really revealing. When we say surfing the web, right? surfing is a skim activity. You want to yeah. avoid going deep. You stay on the surface and you kind of bop from position to position. Digital reading, I found to be very much like that. So I might start an article, if I'm reading the New York mm. Times, I might start an article. If it interests me, I'll, I'll read it in full. But if I don't, I'll, I'll back up and go to another article or go to another subject yeah. matter, right? Much like Wolf reports, much like the writer of The Shallows reports, the ability to sit for an hour, mm. two hours, reading a Dickens novel, or anything else that is kind of what we might call of literary substance, yeah. as opposed to being something that you know a, a, a lay person has written on the web, suddenly became more and more challenging. You feel it in yourself. It mm. takes time. So let's say if I'm reading, uh, let me pick a favorite, even something like Harry Potter, which I which I was doing over the weekend. If I crack open one of the volumes of Harry Potter, Rowling for me is yeah. actually an easy read. It's delightful. Yeah. And I used to be able to devour those books in a matter of hours, but yeah. it, I can't do that anymore. My, so my block of kind of sustained reading 
is usually about 45 minutes or an hour. And what I find is it takes me about five or 10 minutes just to kind of clear the clutter mm. Of the distractions, maybe put the phone down or put it on mute, (laughs) silence it, right? (laughs) And even close, make sure that the screen's not visible because the moment it lights up like I'm thinking, okay, someone's contacting me or whatever. What it takes to enter a space that is focused, relaxed, Mm. quiet, all of these adjectives that I'm trying to come up with to suggest this is a space deliberately for the reading of this book is increasingly difficult. Whereas I used to be able to do that 20 years ago without even thinking about it. I mean, my whole of my doctoral life was reading books. That's what I did Mm -hmm. for eight hours a day, six hours a day, eight hours a day. That's impressive, though, I have to say. To even imagine doing that now. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, admittedly, my reading now has shifted. I read a lot of student papers. I read emails. Right. There's a different kind of reading that I'm doing. But the kind of sustained reading that I enjoyed in my early adulthood feels less doable than it once did. And I think this is what Wolf and others were noticing, especially those of us kind of old school formed. We were noticing within, I would say, a decade, maybe a decade mm, and a half. Not that long. That something was changing. Something was changing in our cognitive architecture that made that what I'm going to call contemplation. I mean, mm, I'm going to use an ancient term yes. for it. That made that contemplation so much more difficult than it used to be. And if we couple that with an observation that I think lots of uh, culture and tech experts have made, which is that not only are our attention spans for reading compromised, but we find ourselves, we're overworked. Mm. We have to rush from this thing to this thing. The idea of having a space that's uninterrupted is almost like a unicorn. Yeah, yeah. And that has a, and that has a direct effect on our ability to engage, to process, to do what the best of what Wolf describes in letter three, that associative kind of reading, where our reading uses a word or uses a phrase, and suddenly our minds are evoked into a memory from childhood. And then, or, or maybe uh, something like a, a smell or a taste mm. is evoked, and we linger over it. Or maybe it's a, maybe we're reading an intellectual argument that's really stimulating. We find ourselves with our pencil jotting notes in the margins and highlighting passages. Digital reading does not really accommodate that. And you can sit there and say, well, you know, Kobo can you can highlight text yeah. and do that's good. Yeah. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is engagement. Mm. A kind of singular focus on the text. And that is one of the elements that I think has changed. I think my students over the course of the last 10 years have been saying to me in a variety of ways, some overt and maybe more covert, that they have more difficulty reading a lot of pages. If I assign 20 or 30 pages, like they have a tough time sitting down and doing that. My first semester, first year undergraduate honors course, that one course, we read 2,200 pages in that class. I don't think students could handle 2,200 collectively over a semester anymore. And that's just a shift. That was one of four classes from wow. me. I was doing other things in yeah. addition to that. Right? So there is a, um, there's a decline in the, in the amount of reading, in the amount of time devoted to reading, and I think most importantly, the engagement with the reading. Okay, well, I, to, to sort of kind of 
build into this. Um, she, in her le in letter three, talks about deep reading, and she sort of defines it as the immersive and reflective reading that allows us to comprehend comprehend complex ideas and engage with texts on a profound level. And then she kind of breaks it down into the different processes. Yeah. Like, so she um, talks about uh, empathy and imagery and analysis. And so could you maybe just break down some of those processes to sort of give us an idea, give the reader or listener readers, yeah. hopefully the listeners oh, are yeah, readers, yeah, absolutely. Uh, listeners absolutely. this uh, kind of understanding. If you'll indulge me, I think the best way to go about it is actually to borrow, and I do this with uh, with my discussion guide to the first one, is actually to incorporate something from Proust in the Square, okay. which illustrates the point, I think, very, very nicely. Um, she provides a passage from Marcel Proust, a famous French author. It's a, a probably a half page, uh, a paragraph worth of reading. And what she invites us to do as her reader is to read this passage and then in the aftermath of having read it, to ask ourselves a series of questions. Um, if you'll indulge yeah. me, I'm just going to read this passage because okay. I think it illustrates the point very nicely. So the passage goes like this. There are perhaps no days of our childhood we lived so fully as those we spent with a favorite book. Everything that filled them for others, so it seemed, and that we dismissed as a vulgar obstacle to its divine pleasure... <laughs> the game for which a friend would come to fetch us at the most interesting passage, the troublesome bee or sun ray that forced us to lift our eyes from the page or to change position, the provisions for the afternoon snack that we had been made to take along and that we left beside us on the bench without touching, while above our head the sun was diminishing in force in the blue sky. The dinner we had to return home for, and during which we thought only of going up immediately afterward to finish the interrupted chapter. All those things with which reading should have kept us from feeling anything but annoyance. On the contrary, they have engraved in us so sweet a memory. So much more precious to our present judgment than what we read then with such love that if we still happen today to leaf through those books of another time, it is for no other reason than that they are the only calendars we have kept of those days that have vanished, and we hope to see reflected on their pages the dwellings and the ponds which no longer exist. What she follows this with hmm. is a series of reflective questions did we read the passage straight through? Or when we heard certain words, did our mind veer off? Right? Mm, yes. We live in a culture of economy that loves efficiency as one of its oh. words, right? <laughs> and we imagine, and I have imagined this until I read these books, I had imagined that it was a defect in my intellect that if I read a word, um, one of the words that's evocative for me is the idea of beach or seaside. Yeah. I grew up in the Pacific Northwest. The Oregon coast is my happy place. And so whenever I read anything related to that, my memory immediately goes into memories of childhood oh, running on the yeah. beach or images of, of, of a beachhead or of a particularly crisp uh, blue sky, right? It's evocative. Yeah. When our minds dovetail in the deep reading process, Wolf is saying that is appropriate. That's not a defect. That's what deep reading does. It calls memory. 
So memory and our literacy are intimately connected with one another. This is why, as we age, as we build a very rich uh, kind of book of experiences, reading becomes uh, a bit of a, a kind of hunt and peck game where it might take us a half an hour to read a page because so many evocations are happening to us in the process of reading. At first I thought, man, I just must be getting old. It's taking me forever to read this passage. And then I read this and answered, uh, did, did, did Wolf's questions, and I went, oh my gosh. For me reading now, everything jumps off the page. Mm. Even in my copy that I have in front of me right here, I've highlighted uh, there are four words that are evocative mm. for me. A bee, a snack, a sky, and dinner. And I always tell my students that when I read that word B, I have a memory of when I was seven or eight years old, the only time I've ever been stung. Mm. I was walking in our yard, which hadn't been mowed for a while, and there was clover, and the bees loved the clover, and I was wearing sandals that day. And a bee stung me not because it sought to stung me, but because as I was walking, one had gotten stuck underneath my my heel. And where I'd always thought bees would attack me, in fact... I felt awful that day that I crushed that poor bee and yeah. got stung in the process. So as I read that word, that memory right. immediately kind of appears in front of me. And so there's a sense that as, as we read, one element that Wolf is mm. talking about is this associative element, that words or images or sights or sounds will be evoked. And one of my favorite parts of her cognitive research, she says to us, if we're reading, for instance, about a textile or a garment, that our motor skills are responding in the in our cognitive faculties are responding to what velvet feels like. I loved that. I Isn't also, that amazing? It was amazing. I thought it's that amazing. I was thinking like, oh, that is so cool. Like she was talking about like the leap and that your 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 bodies, the neurons that make you actually like feel that sense of leaping when you really do leap yes. are triggered in the same way when yes. you just read it. I was like, this is, and I think, you know, we take reading for granted so much, like, you know, reading, but then when you read about how much work the brain has to do and what is involved when we actually just, you know, read a sentence, it is just staggering. Yeah. One of my favorite expressions, I always say to my students when we're reading through any of of Wolf's work, I have a little uh, letter designation in my texts. It's FWM, fearfully and wonderfully made. These evidences that are in our cognitive faculties that we have been expertly designed, right? So there's there's an argument I realize that Wolf is working out of, as most cognitive neuroscientists will know, out of a kind of evolutionary view. I don't have a problem with evolutionary views in my Christian faith, but for those who do, see it as divine providence that these aspects Mm. these these gifts these faculties are a part of what we do and so the matter of this this evocative associative piece that we are um, about is actually to me evidence of our of our fearfully and wonderfully Mm. madeness so this element of reading and making these connections sensorially wolf makes the point this happens in an instant yeah in quite literally in the space of, of, of milliseconds. So it's an extraordinary thing that we are not just cerebrally engaged. <laughs> I feel like we're like in a construction zone, but not. 
but we are not just cerebrally engaged, but we are sensorially engaged. It's a full body activity. Mm. Now, we may not see it as, it's not exercise. A dietitian, <laughs> a dietitian is not going to see it as exercise. But we are exercising more parts of our, ourselves than just an intellectual kind of component. So that's one element. Um, the other one that I will highlight, there's several. And yeah. if you read the book, you will find them in there. But the other one is this, um, students are always fascinated by the idea of image making. And this actually has ancient antecedents. Um, if you read, if you read Dante's comedy, for instance, um, he loves riffing on this um, this metaphor from Aristotle that image making is uh, the cognitive equivalent of wax being impressed by a yeah. seal, by a signet ring, and that our memory making we might see as pliant or soft, and that as we experience life or as we mm. read books, that information is impressed into the soft wax of our of our of our intellects and that notion of image making is such a crucial one we we underestimate sometimes how valuable our visual sense uh, our visual oh, okay. system is right so that when we are for instance looking at something whether maybe it's a beautiful mountain or maybe it's a, a family photo or something we are imprinting not only the information of what's in our, what's in our visual uh, field, but we're also associating emotion with those things. And this is where, when, when I mentioned earlier, and you, you, you piggybacked off of it, the, the importance of having mentors who help us learn things, we learn in relationship. Mm -hmm. So there are certain things, for instance, when I'm reading uh, The Divine Comedy, I have memories of an office visit with Denise and a conversation that we had in that moment. And so when I go through my book, which I have from 31 years oh, ago, like I can, I, can, I can see a highlight and go, oh, I remember the day that we talked about that. Yeah. So yes, it's Dante, and yes, I'm remembering a specific episode in the comedy, but I'm also remembering an inter a, 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 a relational interaction that happened in that space. So image making, we can think of kind of robustly. It's not just about literally... You know, what did we see or what did we yeah. learn? It's also about the context in which those things were garnered. So deep reading accesses those, but it also creates them, right? Yeah. It, it's an opportunity to make new, to make new impressions in our, in our cognitive faculties. Yeah, I, I think I went in, in that, I actually, like in that chapter where she talks in that letter, I should say, that she talks about all the deep reading and all the different, the thing that I found really striking was her, um, when she talks about the analogy and like also, um, I don't know if this is in the same chapter, but the common knowledge, right? Like the fact that we know certain uh, lines of text and it's sort of just ingrained in all of us. And if I mention that, you will know what I am talking yes. about. But and then she was talking about how without that sort of common thread, Good. we will like lose some of this, like we are to the togetherness of yep. like what it means to be formed in a, I guess, a Western culture or have these, uh, these ideas. And, and it was just so powerful to me. I thought, wow, that's, that's awful. Like I kind of felt like that was the moment where like cause the whole book a little bit is a little, uh, like, this is an alarm bell. We really need to re right. we really need to think about what we're doing here. And right. then for that, I was like, Oh no. Yeah. That's terrible. We won't like, we won't be able to talk to each other with the same Good. words. And yeah. yeah, there's going back to the eighties. And the, when I was, when I was a high school student and then into my early undergraduate days and I owe my 
my father who who passed away in January. Oh, um, I I took off of his shelf two books and never returned them. <laughs> and I've done, unfortunately, I've done this on a couple of occasions. I hope that the, the thievery was merited by the fact that I engaged the learning that was in them and that I used them in my teaching. In the in the 80s, there were two, two books in particular that, that kind of began a broad cultural discussion about mm. what we're going to call cultural literacy. Yeah. That term is Edie Hirsch's from a book about cultural literacy. And part of the revolution of that particular book was that in the back of it is, a, is an, a, an appendix that's alphabetical, and it just has a list of what he considered to be items that every literate person should know something about. So, oh, wow. so for instance... I want this book now. <laughs> so, for instance, under D, you will find Divine Comedy. And the goal there is not to say, well, I've read Dante, or mm. I've read, you know, I know everything about Inferno. The point is to say, this is a 14th century... Italian work that shaped the Christian imagination. Just to be able to have a sentence that suggests that you know who this is by or what it's about or why it's culturally significant. And so you can do that for all of these elements in this alphabetical list. Okay. Right? So my dad and I would do this little task. He would <laughs> open up the, 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 the dictionary back there and he'd pick a word and say, tell me something about this. And if I could, then I was at that point in high school then I was, I was demonstrating my awareness of the cultural literacy that's necessary to kind of survive. These would be right. things relevant for news articles or to, you know, uh, listen to the news on a nightly basis that people would reference these things. I love telling my HUM 110 students here at Redeemer when we read Machiavelli's The Prince, mm -hmm. okay? One of our favorite adjectives in contemporary society is Machiavellian. And I say to them, I want you to know where that came from. So that as we read the prince and we look at a very striking argument about the most e efficient kind of government is tyranny, <laughs> then we might say, okay, to be Machiavellian is not a good thing. That's not, yes. <laughs> there's a particular, there's a particular uh, kind of um, uh, valuation of that term that we need to have, right? right? But the ability to know that is something, Machiavelli was an Italian writer in the Italian mm. Renaissance who wrote about political theory, who wrote about um, what is what is proper governance, right? To be able to do that gives us access point across space and time. So cultural literacy is, is one element of the things that you were just talking about, this ability to connect, to have a common language, a common set of images and references that we can rely on. The second piece of that that is so important actually came about from a book that I think was in part responding to, to Hirsch's book, there's a book called The Closing of the American Mind by a teacher at the University of Chicago, Alan Bloom. And that book was arguing that because we weren't reading common texts, our ability to communicate with one another on those cultural literacy levels were dying. That if we mm. haven't collectively read Plato's Republic, then what's the point of invoking the allegory of the cave? If you don't know what the allegory of the cave is, it does, it's a reference that, that is literally has its back turned to you. And I think here of a, of a wonderful quotation that I was given when I was a sixth grader um, in the Pacific Northwest. We would do a week of outdoor school. So they okay. would take us up to a camp and we would study soil and animals and rocks and all that kind of stuff. And one of the guidance counselors there gave me a, a, it was, it was a quotation essentially by English writer Thomas Hardy. And it says, to the person uninstructed in natural history, a seaside walk or a walk through a forest 
is like walking through a museum where nine-tenths of the works have their back turned to you. Hmm. Now, he was talking about natural science, the idea of just taking a nature walk, not understanding anything about trees or about mountains or about animals and the like. But we can apply that generally to what what we can call Western civilization. That if we don't know the great works of the Western civilization, every time they're invoked is literally a point of, it's a dead point in our, mm. in our ability to connect with that reading. I've made a habit over the years now when I read a, a text, a literary text, even secondary text, I use a, I'm an avid highlighter, and okay. I will use green okay. to highlight a writer or a reference to a text. And my task is, as a reader, both of primary texts and secondary texts, to know what those what those conversationalists, why are they important? Why are they here? So if I'm reading Dante and he invokes mm. Virgil, and I don't know anything about Virgil's Aeneid, I can assure you that I will not read the Divine Comedy well. Virgil is central to the project that Dante is up to. And so if we learn as readers to appreciate these references to other conversationalists, yeah. then our reading will be more engaged and we'll also have a sense, I think, of satisfaction that, wow, we're, can, we're a part of this conversation. But until we do that reading, we feel like outsiders. Yeah. And that can be really discouraging when we're reading texts that we're unfamiliar with. Yeah. And yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting point because, you know, in my uh, poetry class that we just had, I had Dr. Faber. And I mean, there's just so much like you know the the rape of the lock and um what was the other one uh uh i'm trying to think of it it's on the tip of my tongue but um there's there's just like so many poems that we read that had references you know in them to something else and so the whole time you're reading this you're you're thinking oh but now i need to and I mean, that's the beauty of reading. That is always yeah. the beauty of books where, you know, a yeah. good book is always referencing another book that you're that's like, right. oh, my list of ever growing books I need to yeah. like understand or read about um, <laughs> that will sit by my bedside table. Will I read this? <laughs> the highest compliment that has ever been paid to me as a teacher came in my second semester around here. It was the first time I was teaching the Lewis and Tolkien seminar. And one of my best students in that class came to me and, and said, Dr. J, I loved your class. That was fine and everything. You're, you're a good teacher. He said, but I just want to read everything they read. Mm. And I said, my work here is done. <laughs> right? Because that's, that's what happens. It happened for me with Dante 30 mm. years ago that I went, what was Dante reading? I got to read all this stuff. Right. I got to read Virgil's Aeneid and Ovid's Metamorphosis. And I, you know, I need to know what, where, where these conversationalists are coming from. Mm. If we take that initiative, not only do we find that our reading becomes richer and our engagement so much uh, broader, right? There's so many different ways that this can go. But our biographies, in some senses, become a tale of what have we read. Mm, Yes. So this is the other thing. Proust makes this reference to a calendar. Books are a way of measuring our life story. So when I run through my, my edition of the comedy from 30 years ago, I have multiple colors over seven or eight different readings of that text. Right. And what you find is that I highlight different things at different times. Different parts of the text are speaking to me right. at different times. And so books become this way of measuring our life experiences. 
not only with their ideas, but also stages, seasons of our life. Yeah, I think, and the that is, I mean, that's so powerful when you think about, like, how, I mean, this is why I also have, like, I really do often, like, I get a textbook, I get the book, I write yeah. in the margins, because yeah. I can't, I think also it's back to your point about old school. I'm not yeah. 17. So yeah. I grew, I, you know, I grew up with actual books. And, you know, I was thinking also something that she really talks about as I think about students and I think about, um, you know, you're talking about this contemplative meditative space of reading. Um, she talks about the external and internal knowledge and and how with such access like Google, the external knowledge I can access, like even if I don't understand what a Machiavellian is, I can just Google it. And so in some ways it's like interesting. I was just thinking about that in terms of like that access, but also maybe like, why do we need to have internal knowledge then? Like, I think like that's kind of what I was kind of thinking what you're re- what you're wrestling with is kind of the catch twenty two that that exists here, and I will say that when I began my teaching career at Redeemer twelve years ago, I had a kind of uh, what I would call a posture of humility. It wasn't a disingenuous one that students are going to know more about tech than I do, mm. and it didn't take very long before I figured out that was entirely wrong. I wrote a dissertation, not only with a, with a major research library at the University of Notre Dame under my belt, but with all of my computer skills to use online Oxford English dictionaries and corpuses of Latin texts. And like, I have a really sophisticated ability, even with Google, to yeah. find information that I want. Maybe it's a Latin text from the ninth century or something. I know how to, to control my search engines and find the things that I'm looking for. And what I what I figured out in the process is my students didn't know how to do that because they hadn't experienced what it was like to work with a fully functional real library, right? right? Yeah. To muck around in the stacks and to find <laughs> things. Right. And so the, the, the one thing that I think Wolf rightly identifies technology has a real gift that it offers us in terms of speed mm. and in terms of these cultural literacy things. So I'm always saying to my students, especially my first years, look, if you're reading and it says something like Machiavellian, look it up. <laughs> Two seconds, literally have your computer in front of you. I do it on my phone, Yeah, right? Yeah. I can look up something and instantaneously have the cultural background. Right. So Wikipedia, I know some professors here at Redeemer <laughs> denounce Wikipedia. I don't. Yeah. I will yeah. tell you that Wikipedia is a very useful tool for that cultural literacy. Mm-hmm. But then the question becomes, and I think this is something, ChatGPT is still so new. I'm, I'm just beginning to get mm. my, my head wrapped around this. But this is where the real challenge, um, I'm going to argue conceptually with what ChatGPT is, bothers me. Mm. And it's not that that a bot could come up with information or present a text or do any of those things. What bothers me is that ChatGPT will make the process of investigation will, it, it's like the calculator. It'll do the calculation for you, but you won't know how it came up with that. Mm. And the beauty of being able to do research in a digital world is that you got to learn to be persnickety. Yeah. That if the first five searches don't yield what you're looking for, do five more. Right. Right? Hone your Boolean terms. 
hone, like think through what, you, what, what it is that you need to find the hit that you're looking for. And I love it if a student comes in my office and says, well, I did five minutes of research and I couldn't find anything on this topic. And I'm like, that topic has been written about ad nauseum. Yeah. <laughs> I can assure you that you didn't look hard. Right, right. And then my task is to sit down at the keyboard and say, come here, let me show you what it looks like. Okay. Right. And then they go, oh, wow. So is, would you say it's kind of for you then, is it the, because maybe this is kind of what I have really wrestled with for myself. It's just the ease. Like when things are sometimes yes. too easy, we don't appreciate them. That's right. Do you know? That's right. <laughs> yeah. So if, if, if we use, let me, let me pick a very banal metaphor for someone who, let's say they make, they're a cabinet maker, right? In order to make good cabinets, that's a, that's an apprenticeship kind of process, right? You watch somebody who's a master cabinet maker. If you have interest and get kind of absorbed in it, then you will study. You'll look at different techniques. You'll look at different design. Um, hopefully, you'll have some opportunity to practice your craft. People will pay you for, for your expertise <laughs> and the like. Yeah. And so there's, there's two sets of things. There's kind of what we would think of as book learning. And then there's the experiential part of it. And you put those two things together in order to hone a craft. I think the contemporary world, broadly speaking, but also the realm of students as, as it mm. pertains to university, don't imagine that learning is something that they have to learn how to do, when in ah. fact it's an apprenticeship to learn how to learn. So those of us who are, again, old school, who've been trained under the old literacy, yeah. actually have, a, have a, again, a perseverance and a persnicketiness. If I can't find something, that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. What it means is I haven't found it yet, mm, <laughs> right? right? My attitude is different. And so then the task becomes, how am I going to find this thing that I'm looking for? And in the process, I think what you learn, even if it's simple things like using a card catalog in the old days to find right. something as opposed to a digital one, um, we have these you know, incredible databases of secondary literature and even online books and the like. Um, you just have to get really clever yeah. and it takes time this is this is where wolf's lament about the digital world's love of speed if being a researcher takes time the internet is supposed to be about speed yeah. those two things are coming into conflict with one another i will say not to be rude but i will say it that students are lazy <laughs> well we they, all are <laughs> they are not person they're they're mm. not persnickety enough right and in fact, the data that, that they want for things that they're writing research papers about or looking at for literary critical purposes are there. Right. They just can't find them. They just can't find them. Mm. And so part of our task, I think, now, and this is going to be an issue for more than just, I mean, I'm, I turned 50 this year. So, you know, I've probably got another 15 years or so yeah. of teaching and, and doing research in the academy. This is a problem that's going to extend beyond the lifetime of my career. Right. Which is helping students in a digital age learn how to investigate. Right. And part of the challenge there is those of us with old school formation, we're going to die out. So the question is, will your generation and the generations behind you learn the skills that you need to pass on? To future, right, to, to future students, whether that's your, mm. whether that's your own children or right. literally as teachers in public and, and university spaces. Yeah, yeah, that's, well, and, and this is sort of what, I, I guess we sort of talked about this prior to us even uh, starting the recording about, um, like, the difference that she has been noticing. Like, so yes. she goes through... Um, 
about empathy and that like the degree of empathy has gone down in in, um, in recent days. She also talks about we talked about um, the Mark Edmondson's work who talks about one of the problems of either being so rigid in your belief system of being like there is no other way and not being at all open to having your view challenged or the absence of a view, right? Just being ignorant of where you come from, the views around you, and just being like apathetic, like, well, you know what, who cares? And so she talks about those two, he talks about those two ideas and then she does as well. But I think that is something that I think as what you, is kind of relating to this, like the whole idea of like students needing to, yeah, like that, like that where we are as a society, where we are as people, it's a little bit alarming. It is, yeah. And, and it's simple when these things, it's, I think what Wolf's work, both Person Squid and Reader Come Home, I think where she is lamenting is that, is literally how quickly this has all changed. Mm. She publishes a book in 2007 about the glories of a multiple thousand year process of humans developing the, the capacity to read yeah. text, text on a printed page. Right. And then literally within a few years time, that's being threatened. Right. Like how quickly does that happen? Yeah. We're, I not, think, yeah. we're not talking about a rise and then a decline. We're talking about rise and then precipitous fall. Yeah. So in that context, then I think what she's, what she's identifying and I think about this very simply as both a teacher, but also as a, as a discipler, as someone who sees this as a relevant to our Christian faith, that you are never more than a, a, a few years or a few generations away from losing some skill or habit that you've wanted to cultivate. When I was an undergraduate, I, I actually, just after I graduated, I was on staff with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship doing, okay, doing yeah. campus ministry for a couple of years. And... Oh the particular staff worker that I was apprenticing with said to me, you're never more than two years away from complete disintegration. Mm-hmm. And I looked at him and said, what are you talking about? He says, if your third and fourth year students don't build relationships and disciple first and second year students, then when those students are in their third and fourth year, they can't lead anybody. And suddenly, well, okay, well, it's not a big deal if that student doesn't get engaged or get involved. I went, oh, I, now I see why it matters. Right. So we're in a, I don't think it's quite that alarming. I don't think it's a yeah. matter of a year or two, but I do think that we're talking about a trajectory maybe over five or 10 years that we need to safeguard the practices, the habits of deep reading. Yeah. Redeemer is an unusual place. I think we are old school enough here yeah. that students are getting they're being forced through their textbooks, through <laughs> yeah. their assignments to do a lot of reading. Even the, even the core curriculum with our course packs, yeah. we're saying to students, you need to be old school textual readers. Right. Now there may come a day. I don't know if it'll be while I'm here or after I'm gone, when maybe the entirety of the course pack is digitized and everything is in a virtual space. What I know from my students' testimony already is that digital, so even this semester with the history of language class, our textbook was digital. Yeah. And uniformly students said, this was not good. I didn't have the discipline to read, and I was frustrated when I was reading mm. on, on a screen. And that, that to me, is the canary in mm. the mine shaft. They didn't like that format. And the problem for me is actually if that book will ever go back to print. And that's an Oxford University press book. 
So, so access, right? I right. think that's the other thing. Access. access, absolutely. So, what we're looking at, and I, th- I, I will always say that Wolf. I don't think Wolf is a luddite. I think she's very much accepting of the fact that technology is here. We're not going to. Yeah. We're not going to eliminate it. But I think what she is signaling to us is that if we are not, I'm going to call it custodians, yeah, of an older methodology that is tied then to the material objects of real books. Right. We could have tons of libraries scattered around the world and no one who can access them. Right. That would be the, tra- the, the tragedy, is if no one can actually use the wisdom and learning accrued over the last 5,000 years. Yes. And if someone says, well, I can just Google it. I'm like, are you really accessing it? Are you sitting with it, absorbing it, living with it, marking it, you know, internally kind of digesting it? Or is it something that you surfed and on you went? Right. And then will you remember it? Because that's the other, I think that was the other thing that struck me too about, I mean, I, I, when she was explaining her struggle about like trying to read um, something again, that was something that I thought, wow, like when I was a teenager, I could just just I could read like I could sit and read all day like I, if it was a great great novel that I was really into like yeah it was no problem and now I think I think there's two things you kind of mentioned this the efficiency economy of the culture that we live in where it's like the religion is how fast and how efficient you can be and how much like a computer as a human you that's can right. be that's and right. so I, I think that's one piece where you feel guilty. Yeah. Like I feel guilt when I sit and read and I think, well, I could, you know, is this the best use of my time? And it's just so silly. I'm like, I, you know, you can't even read for leisure because you're feeling guilty. Even, even the word leisure yeah. is, a, is, a, is, a, is actually a crucial kind of marker, I think, in all mm. of this. One of the things that my medieval monks, and I've spent a fair amount of time reading their literature too, um, there's a, a concept that emerges in some of their writing um, that in Latin would be called sanctum otium, okay. sa- sacred, sacred leisure. And for the monks, the monks made a decision to kind of isolate themselves from the day-to-day right. business of the world in order to pray, in order to study, in order to do manual labor as a part of the Benedictine rule. Um, and there's a, there's a, what do I want to call it? There's a special space that that creates, right? That we're not in a hurry. That mm-hmm. time is not, we're not measuring, time is not money. We're not, we're not thinking in yeah. those terms. And the result is that, we, that the monks would linger over scripture, over the fathers, over the commentaries, um, over the poetry and other creative things that emerged from their engagement with the faith. And so what became for them was a kind of, their favorite word is a, is a banquet, um, a convivium. Mm. Um, it, it's a feast, a feast of words, a feast of ideas, a feast of faith. And so part of our challenge is to, is to somehow find, it may not be a feast, maybe it's fast food. I mean, I don't know how we would, <laughs> would you want to use the metaphor today. But in order to have that, we have to have a certain amount of leisure. Mm. And our culture does not value that. Employers mm. do not value that. Right. We are constantly under constraints of time. Right. And in that space, we can't, if we sit there and say, okay, so for instance, in my case, I will say, I'm going to bracket an hour. I'm going to, I'm going to sit down and read as I love to do. Yeah. And then sit there and go, man, why don't I do this more? 
And then when I'm in it, I'm constantly fearing I got to be done by this time. I got to be yeah. done by this time and I can't go any further. And then I get there and I'm frustrated. Education in the West, formal education, mm. what the university represents and has represented for a thousand years is predicated on a certain kind of freedom of time. Most students who come to Redeemer are completely unaware that what we do here is we, we take you out of culture for four years, yeah. four or five years. We isolate you. We give you community, yeah. an important part of that, right? The, the, the experience of living together mm, and learning yeah. how to negotiate relationships, but also learning in those relationships, right? Yeah. Wow, I just heard the coolest thing out of Dr. J's class, right? Yeah. And, and processing that together. What we know, or what I know at least, is that that will all come to an end when you graduate. Yeah. You will never have the same kind of structured space and time outside of here that mm-hmm. you did while you were here. Mm-hmm. So in some senses, I, I want to say, like, gorge at the feast because right. you won't have time like this again. Yeah. I mean, well, and that's the, the and see for me as someone who's going, you know, I'm 33 and I'm going back to university. And so I already have. You like, know this. And I, I like, I went, I actually did a year and a half of undergrad and then I did college and then I worked and then now I'm yeah. back at university. And so, but when I, pre, pre being married and kids and having that freedom the first time around, in some ways it was like good. And, but this time it's interesting because I feel like there's pros and cons to both, obviously. Sure. Like the, the life experience of actually knowing like having time to read, like I have mm-hmm. always read. And so now I have like, you know, I got nine years of reading on everyone. <laughs> you do. And so Absolutely like, as do. a person who's always loved to read, I'm like, oh, but at, even when, you know, my professors are relating, I'm like, oh, I read this other thing that reminded me of this. Like, yeah. you know, my connections. But I mean, it makes reading harder, back to your point. <laughs> well, but it's also, you're, you're, you're applying the Wolf yeah. associative model very nicely. Yes. Right. So th- this yeah. is the challenging thing for. But I don't have time. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so it's tricky. Like, do yeah. I rather have the time, or because yeah, I have a very busy life. <laughs> what you are doing, and this is what we all have to do in the first world, at least, is we are constantly negotiating mm. what we know is valuable about our reading time against yeah. being a parent and having a job and doing all those pieces, right? Yeah. So that when we when we talk about the practical applications here. Some of the simplest thing that I can suggest, I'm a big believer in the word habit. Mm-hmm. Habitus in Latin is an idea of, about consistency and it's about, it's got implied discipline that's there. Even the notion of, of monks wear a habit, mm. um, that there's a kind of garment. So we're, what we're doing yeah. is, we're, we're, is we're creating selves who c- consider certain kinds of practices beneficial as a regular kind of, kind of yeah. practice, right? What I, if there's any kind of preaching message that I would give out of, of engaging Wolf's work. It's this. You cannot hone what you don't do. Mm. If you do not read, then it will very quickly become the case where you don't read at all. If you are a reader, even if you're not an avid one, there's time yeah. to become an avid one, but even if you're just kind of at a beginning stage and you read a few things and go, wow, actually that's, that's really interesting and I want to know more. Yeah. That spark, if you create the habit, and again, it might only be, let's say it's a half an hour a day. Yeah. 
if you commit to a half an hour a day where I'm going to say TV's off. Yeah. Don't have your screen off. Phones on vibrate, <laughs> right? Et cetera, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Create some space. Yeah. I think you will find it could be difficult at first, but I think if you make the habit and do it, what will happen is you'll sit there and go, I said a half an hour and it's an hour and a half now. That mm. in time, the, the, the joy of it, the, the, the edification that comes from it will, in fact, it, it's just like, a, like a, a long distance runner. The more you do it, the longer you can go. Mm. And if you train yourself, you can actually do the hard things. You know, I think of like reading a Dickens novel or an <laughs> Elliot novel that's, you know, 700 pages long or something. In time, you will find yourself able to do things that you didn't think were even possible. Yeah. But if you do not cultivate the habit, the problem is that you won't have a routine for it anyway. And, it will, and life will encroach on you. Yeah, yeah. And you won't make it a priority. I hope that every one of the students who passes through my class, and indeed, th really, through all of the English department classes, and if I'm being really adventurous, <laughs> I'll say through all of the humanities, at least, yeah. is that our students walk out of, of their time at Redeemer committed to the idea, I'm going to make reading a discipline of my life. That can begin, mm. can be as simple as scripture, yeah. but it, I think it will always enlarge out of that. Yes. You know, some c contemporary issue you'll be interested in, and you'll say, oh, if you're passing through chapters or indigo and you see, yeah, I should read that. Yeah. And so you go buy it. I always count if, if I can get students to pursue something of their own desire and volition, I tell them I win. Right. That my gamble has paid. If I, can, if I develop in you enough interest to pursue on your own, whether it's prose or poetry, whatever the, whatever yeah. the genre, genre is yeah. really irrelevant to me. But if I can get you to want to read further on your own, then I win. Yes. That's the task that that literacy, that uh, kind of the, the Western tradition and Western culture, which bears within it all of our sins. It bears yeah. within it all of the complications. This is why we continue to wrestle with issues around race and indigeneity, around gender, mm. around sexuality. Like, there's no other way to approach those complex issues yeah. than by reading. Yeah. And interacting with people who are who are connected to those issues, like, and the more you read, the more intelligent your your engagement with those complex issues will be, and that's what I think yeah. Wolf is getting at. The, kind of the political dimension of Wolf's yeah. work is saying, if we can have a society full of readers, it's not that we're all going to come to the same conclusion. Yes. I mean, we've proven that amply in <laughs> yeah. our in our own day. Yeah. But what we could have is we could have a robust cultural conversation about mm. complex matters. But we can't do that if we're all living in a certain kind of ignorance. Right. Or rigidity of belief. Or rigidity of belief. Or acceptance, maybe not having enough um, what I would call um, values regarding how, how reality or fact or truth, mm. all of those elements, how those things can be um, used or deployed in, in the case of debating and arguing complex issues. Yeah. So I, I think there's, I think there's a, a, a deeply practical end to what she's describing. You, you could sum it up very simply as read. Right. <laughs> right. Read whatever you can get your hands on. And I will tell that to people. Yeah. But the more you read, I would hope that that begins to hone your aesthetic. Yeah. 
that actually I don't need to read trash novels. I can actually read things of substance. I can test myself. I can try something hard. Yeah. I can engage something that's about a subject matter that I don't know much about, and I won't have the apparatus to critique it, but I want to know more. Maybe it's about a foreign country, or maybe it's about a political moment in history. The, The trick is to engage. Yes. Yeah, and to have that time. I think you're right. I think the habit piece is like, I mean, this is cr- sh- true of everything in life. Yeah, if you don't make absolutely. the time for it, you're not going to do it. And if yeah. you don't prioritize, and and t- actually, what I have been doing, this is maybe like a shameless plug, but I obviously, um, as a Christian, people fall very differently on the idea of a Sabbath. But I don't necessarily think it's wrong if you don't necessarily keep one i'm not saying that it's sinner or whatever but i for myself have found that having a sunday to say i'm not going to do work i listened it was really andy crouch he really like pushed me over the edge for the sabbath (laughs) and he he was like just you know and he was talking about like all the validation and like you know our world is so much like get these validations check 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 and then to take time and just be like you know what i'm not i'm not going to do that it's like an act of resistance they talk about he talked about it it. and i thought yeah like if i don't do something productive like you know if i don't just i just you know sit here and read a book that i really wanted to read or you know just do something with my kids and you know it's not productive but you think like what we've lost what it means to be human if that's just all we are good and i would actually (laughs) challenge the definition of productive because i think those are productive things Mm, yes yeah they're they're productive on a creative level they're productive on a relational level And, and and so this is it's part of the beauty of why the word sabbath is such a crucial part of our of our christian faith I'm terrible at keeping them. I mm. go to church on Sunday. That is a part of my, my, my habit yeah. and my bracket. I am a churchman through and through. Um, sometimes it's restful. Sometimes yeah. it's not. Yeah. And, and some of that is partly being an educator that, you know, if I've got classes on Monday, I have to get things you know, yeah. kind of ready and rolling a, a, a day in advance. But what you're talking about is, that, is Sabbath in the, what I think is its truest sense, which is creating space for for personal development, for reflection, for mm. meditation, for prayer, for all of the pieces that we need. Because if we're allowing, and Andy Crouch is, is, is really great on this kind of stuff, it is an act of resistance against a culture that wants to define us solely by output. Yes, maybe output. It's not productive, it's output. Yeah, That's because, a good word, yeah. Yeah, because productivity still mm. has, uh, there's something productive about spending time with your kids. Yeah. Especially if you're reading with your kids. What another <laughs> shameless plug that I'll make here. Like, read with your children. I'm reading Harry Potter to them. When you were mentioning excellent, Harry, reading excellent, Harry Potter. Excellent, my, my son yeah. was like, Mom, like, we can't read Harry Potter tonight because I have soccer, but tomorrow we can read it. And I was like, okay, great. Like, you know, it's so exciting. They're feeling it as a crisis to not be able to do it on this <laughs> given day, right? That's what we want. We want... We want developing, I think at the Oak Hill Academy lecture that I gave six weeks ago or so, what I said to those parents in that audience was if you can in your houses in your apartments wherever you're living create like a a book niche Mm. a special place that you can all go as a family at a certain point and say all right it's book time and create a culture of reading is something we do for enjoyment we do it together we do it right just kind of building the sense that reading is a not an isolated act and it never is um one of the great kind of illuminations i think of my of my professional career is figuring out that neither writing nor reading is a solitary 
act, mm. that those are communal things. We do them together. We read and process together. We write together. Um, do that with your physical spaces. Create, and it, you don't have to have an extensive library. My gosh, even if it's just a, a shelf or something like yeah. that, right? Create a space for your kids, for your family, to say that this is a part of what we do. And Wolf is, I think, especially illuminating on this because the windows cognitively, not only for reading skills, but just for kind of what I might call the enjoyment of Mm. books, is in those first, really in the period between 3 and 13. And if we ask the early development uh, psychologists, I'm sure that they would tell us that there's even benefit even before a child can read or articulate words Mm. very much, just being in bookish culture, being in a bookish space, knowing that when mom sits down with me in a book, even if we've read it 500 times, (laughs) that that's part of the learning process, is rehearsing what we already know. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of, call them antidotes for the moment yeah. against that that culture of 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 activity still do those things yeah. you can still play soccer you can still be involved yeah. in your communities and do <laughs> yeah. youth group and do all of those things but just bracket some time and it may not even be daily but you know try to make it a part of your weekly apparatus to say this time is for me yeah and i'm going to read something that i want to read yeah. If it's school related, that's fine too. Yeah. But even that is there's a there's an element of that's required. It's yeah. requirement. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Sometimes I, I find that with text, like I, I feel like the textbook thing, it can be a little bit like because I'm I'm reading I'm doing a summer class and it's a yeah. textbook that I have to read two chapters of every week and I mean it's fine but there's sometimes that you get a little rebellious you know you're yeah. like I just want to read what I want to read. <laughs> I <laughs> Actually, always I always look forward to summer. Yes. In part because oh okay I can. Find some things that I'm that I'm excited. About. So I guess, like to sort of conclude, I know this yeah. has been a, a, a you have places to go and things to do. Um, yeah. But what would you? What's a book that maybe that you're reading right now that you could sort of? It doesn't have to be about this necessarily this subject, but something that you were like, oh, this was a really fascinating thing that I'm reading and a great book. Because I, you know, I, I okay. always love a great book recommendation. Yeah. And here we're talking about reading, and we should do it more. Yeah. So do you have anything that you're like? Or maybe it can be something that in the past that you've always re- you recommend, like a gift yeah. you would give to someone. You're always like, this is a solid book. I always, yeah. It never gets yeah. old. I love oh, it. Yeah. <laughs> there are, the problem is that there's many. <laughs> and there, it, it really it depends on kind of the subject matter, the context. Um, thinking about one of my favorite writers is G.K. Chesterton. And Chesterton was a guy who was uh, living in the early 20th century in England. And he was... He was deeply influential on the thought of C.S. Lewis and of J.R.R. Tolkien and, and others of, of his British ilk. And I teach one of, uh, there's a chapter out of his book called Orthodoxy that's, okay. that's called The Ethics of Elfland. And I use it with my literature, my first year literature courses, and anyone who's taken those courses will remember this reading. It is about the beauty and the gift that reading, and especially of fairy tales and fairy stories, mm. are to an adult human being. Chesterton's reflecting on Mm. all of the wisdom that he learned basically in the nursery, long before he became a sophisticated Londonite writing lots of thousands of articles for, for the London times. Orthodoxy as a whole is a great read. It's a fascinating read about how, how a thinker can think against the grain in the early 20th century. If that kind of thing interests you, but more importantly, what Chesterton does in that book, I think is he lays out 
part of what he's telling in that story is his own conversion mm. to his, at that time, Roman Catholic faith. He had grown up an Anglican in England, yeah. but hadn't, he was kind of a cultural Anglican. He wasn't yeah. really committed. And then he has this kind of revelation and he becomes a Roman Catholic. And one of my favorite images of all time he describes, which is he says, you know, here I was, this this new revelation of a, of a particular kind of faith with a particular kind of history. So here I am, I'm toting my flag on this strange new island I found, and I'm thinking, this is the place, right? And I'm going to plant my flag, and this is the new territory I'm going to claim. And then he looks around and he says, and then I saw thousands of other flags already staked. <laughs> that can be discouraging in the moment, but what Chesterton reads that as, oh, I'm coming to the same conclusion that thousands of others before me have come to. Mm. That our Christian faith, when we talk about tradition, and Protestants tend to have a have a love-hate relationship with the word tradition, and it's yes. really funny. Literally, trotto trotera means to pass on, to hand over, mm. right? And so tradition are those things that we hand on to the, to the next generation. And it can be learning, but it can also be the faith. It can be a variety mm. of different pieces, right? What Chesterton was brilliantly and humorously discovering is that nothing that we would claim in our 21st century context is new. Mm, yes. It's all been there before. And so if we see our task as readers, as recovery of things that get ignored, or recovery of things that have been set up for us to receive, like handed down. Yeah. The Apostle Paul talks about this in 1 yeah. Corinthians, right? I, I hand off to you what I was given. That if we will treat our reading lives as something not only that we receive, but then that we can also pass on to others. There's something wonderful about helping another person discover that the territory that they find so exciting <laughs> is territory that others have claimed before them. Yeah. So instead of seeing themselves, the, the world loves originality. And mm. what I'm going to say is Christianity is really boring. We prize connection to what has already been discovered. Yes. We, we don't have to be original. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the beautiful thing is we, we appropriate and acquire the wisdom of the past. And sometimes it comes in the strangest places. Protestants finding Catholics. Yeah. yeah. Or Catholics finding Protestants. Or yeah. whatever the case may be. That, yeah. that sometimes the wisdom comes in the most unusual places that we wouldn't think to look. So I, I might recommend Chesterton's book just as a kind of yeah. um, a, a look from a guy a hundred years ago, wrestling with some of the assumptions and oddities of his own culture. I'm not sure that we're a whole lot different a hundred mm. years later. Thank you for listening to Wisdom and Wonder. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts for more interesting content and engaging conversations. Listen next time to my interview with Dr. Sikima, where we discuss beauty, caper and art, and the life we're looking for.